Thanks, Justin. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's stand as we hear the reading of God's Word this morning. We will be reading from... I promise we're not in a war zone on Sunday mornings. I, I know we, we're not sure exactly. It's something to do with um, something between here and there. We're not sure what it is. But I do apologize. But the main thing is, guys, and you'll see in this text this morning, we are not a people who are concerned about intangibles. We are concerned about hearing the word of Christ. Amen? And by the way, thank you for all those who are working hard. I know our guys are working hard to figure out what that problem is, and we're going to get a handle, I promise. So let us hear the word of the Lord together this morning. Verse 10, for the word of the Lord, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong, I'm getting ready to uh, go to the wrong verse. Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, if you, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. You may be seated. So another point of good news this morning is last week we had my microphone died in the middle of it. I've been assured that I have 13 hours to preach this morning um, with a fresh battery. So (laughs) giddy up, folks. Let's do this. All right. The Lord gives and he takes away on Sunday mornings, yes? All right. Um, it's no secret to any of us in this room, if you've been in the church any, most of your life or any extended period of time, that the church has weeds from time to time, amen? We know this. It happens. It raises up in, play, rises up in places that we don't sometimes or often see. Um, and again, as you, if, if you're here and you've been in the church most of your life, you understand that there is at times an undeniable dark side to the church. And I don't mean like evil or intentionally sinful side, but sometimes there are just dark places that happen in the church and the church doesn't know and sometimes doesn't recognize the reality and the weight of those decisions and that darkness on, on its impact in the world. And many of us in this room know this all too well. We've been in part of churches that have been just consumed with quarrelsomeness, uh, divisiveness, um, they've been involved in churches that have been blind or indifferent to sin um, and been caught up into all kinds of other things. And, and when we come into churches like this, and perhaps when they spark up, even in the best of churches, sometimes these things may show, their, um, may show up at times. We, we walk away and we're left with the question, is there anything else? Is this all there is to the church? It's hard to belong sometimes when you find yourself in a church that is quarrelsome and divisive and uh, uh, competitive and looking to show one-upsmanship with one another. Um, I'm thankful for this church that I've not seen that spirit in you, and I'm thankful for you. And I'm thankful for what God is doing in this church because this is not the spirit that the, of, the, of the church that, is, that has made this church what it is to this day. But lest we look around and not be prepared for the fact that these things can come up from time to time, we must look at these passages ourselves and not look at them and go, oh, poor church, but look at them and go, let's be aware. Let's pay attention. Because the best of churches are, are people at best, Right? They're filled with sinners redeemed by Christ, yes, but they still find people who are struggling in various ways in sin, and, 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 the, and some difficult times can happen. And so last week, we launched into this new preaching series in, um, called Dear Church, and we're taking a look, as you know, already know, we're taking a look at Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthians. And Paul wrote this letter to a church, as we saw last week, that he dearly, dearly loves. Um, regardless of all of the things that are coming to him and things he's hearing about this church, 
You could not read verses 1 through 9 last week and walk away thinking, well, here's Paul, he's done, he's frustrated with the church. No, he's reading, reading that honestly. You see how much he trusts in the grace of God to continue to change and sanctify this beloved church there in Corinth, no matter how difficult things have been. And so he dearly loves them in spite of the serious sins and the serious issues that they face. I mean, you think about how the actions and the things we're going to study in the weeks and the months to come, how much that threatens the public witness of the church, yet Paul still would call the church to behold the glory of God's grace and to be renewed in it in spite of how oftentimes we can become entrenched in these divisions and sins that risk dimming the light of the gospel to the city in which Corinth was sent to be among. And, and, and I think the truth is for us as well. We must always keep these things in mind that we would not find ourselves allowing sin and division in the church to keep us from fulfilling our mandate, keep us from feel, um, shining brightly the, the beauty of the gospel. And so if you're... Um, as you can tell in our scripture reading this morning, what Paul is going to do now as he transitions out of his, his introduction, he's going to begin and he goes right into his matters that he wants to deal with. And the matter he wants to deal with at the, from the very beginning, as we saw there in verses 10 through 17, and we're going to unpack this morning, is that there is a, he has a, an urgency to see this church renew its unity. Now let's just be honest for a second. We know what's coming, right? I mean, if you've been in the Bible, or, and especially in 1 Corinthians, you, you know the serious stuff that the Corinthian church is in, right? So let's just kind of, let's just go ahead and preview it for a second, right? There seems to be an endorsement of incest in the church. That alone should just stop us in our tracks, right? You got rich being haughty over the poor. You've got lawsuits in the church. You got folks who don't know how to separate themselves from temple worship, even temple prostitution, so this is a church that's in a serious situation. And if, if, if I'm in the letter, if I'm the one writing the letter, I'm probably coming with guns a-blazing, yeah? Maybe you are too going, what's wrong with you people, right? But Paul starts out, at least maybe initially we think in a puzzling place on this topic of unity and we might be going, really, Paul? Is that their biggest problem? We need to have a conversation about unity? Isn't that what the world's been doing? Hey, you know, we are the world. You know, no, right? Like, do we really need more of that in the world? And is that what the church needs to focus on? And the answer to that is, an, is a unilateral yes. Their unity is actually at the very core of everything that Paul needs to address. Unity is precisely the place that Paul must start if he's able to actually deal with all this other cornucopia of issues that is plaguing this church. If he doesn't deal with their unity, then they will not have any hope to actually deal with the sin that is actually dividing them. And so we do start with unity, and we rightly start with unity, because the absence of unity in the church at Corinth, and perhaps in the churches that we know, and perhaps it may, God forbid, happen in this church, the, the absence of unity of the church around Jesus, the absence of unity of the church around the gospel, the absence of the unity of the church around its convictions that run downstream of the gospel, they are the main reason. That is the main reason why churches are set ablaze in sin. When we forget our unity in Christ, when we forget our unity in the power of the gospel, when we forget our unity in the implications of the gospel, we, like, all, like churches, like the church of Corinth, can be easily set ablaze into sin and in division and into quarrelsomeness. So the public witness of the gospel is at stake. And so Paul says the only way we can get there, the only way we can deal with all those issues that are going to run downstream in our study in 1 Corinthians this morning, um, over the next few months is to deal with the most core issue that's at, at, at play there is that these people have lost sight of their unity in Christ. If you want to say it more succinctly, who Jesus is to each of us shows up in the unity among all of us. Did you hear that? Who Jesus is to each of us shows up in the unity among all of us. And so you can't just have, and you can't just divide the church among its parts. We must be unified. We must 
praise Jesus. We must worship him. We must keep the gospel central at all times. It must be the ambition of our church's mission from here until Jesus returns. And so this morning, it's on that idea of unity that we want to build all of our thoughts from this text. And here it is. Protecting the unity of the church is a first importance, as a first importance, is vital to maintaining a radiant mission in the world. If you and I want to see this church this radiate the glory of God until Jesus returns, we must at all times put all of our efforts, all of our strength into maintaining the unity of this fellowship lest we fall by the same problems, into the same problems as the Corinthian church. So this morning I have three texts that will outline our, our three thoughts that will outline our text this morning. One is don't downplay the importance of unity. Two, the greatest threat to unity is our pride. And three, and last and most important of all, is that, is that unity is preserved by the power of the cross. Did you hear that? We must recognize the importance of our unity. We must recognize the greatest danger to our unity, which is pride. It's a little different than the handouts you have there. And then we must recognize that we must fight for our unity. And that unity is preserved through the power of the cross. And only by the power of the cross. This is Paul's central thesis to this letter. And it runs, not just in the next four chapters or so, all the way through the letter. So, number one, don't downplay the importance of your unity. Let's read again verses 10 and 11, just to kind of put them fresh in our brain. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, brothers. And, and, and we'll talk about the, the rest of what that quarreling is here in just a moment. Paul has received notice from Chloe's people. Man, isn't it awesome if you have people? Right? I'm sitting there thinking, I'm thinking about Chloe, like, I don't know who Chloe is. None of us really know who Chloe is. We don't know if it's a believer in the church or maybe as someone that's in the community that commentators disagree on this. But whoever Chloe is, Chloe's got people, right? I, I want people, right? I want people like my people will, will talk to your people and we'll figure out a plan, right? I mean, have you ever had that moment? Like being a friend of ours, um, that, a family that we do, like, his name is Corey and his, and his wife is named Megan, and Megan and Amanda are pretty good friends, and me and Corey are pretty good friends, and whenever me and Corey want to do something, I always say, I'll have my people call your people. That's as close to the people as I've got, folks, okay? And, and so that's what it means. Like, Chloe has people, and people are noticing some factions that are tearing apart the church at Corinth. And we see there in verses 11 and 12, or I'm sorry, verse 11, that this People are, they're dividing under their, verse 12, under their favorite leaders. They're letting their dedication, their allegiance to certain leaders in the church um, kind of drive who, how they participate in the church and it's causing divisions. Uh, Tom Schreiner, professor at Southern Seminary, says this, to succumb to the danger of focusing more on allegiance to human ministers rather than Christ might be one of the greatest dangers the church faces in our day. He's right. We allow our allegiance to our people to crowd out and distort and to blind us from seeing Christ. And this is exactly what Chloe's people are bringing Paul's attention to, particularly the differences between Apollos and Paul. They were very different people. Paul, uh, Paul apparently was not a very great public orator. Apollos was a very gifted orator, and they were comparing notes about these leaders, and therefore Apollos, and they were compare Paul and Apollos, of course, they were comparing him to Peter and, then, of course, even to Christ. And there's this, this struggle between the church, and they're trying to cause this wedge, this division, some leaders in this church, between Apollos and Paul, to which Paul comes out frankly and says, man, Apollos is my brother, you know? And, and we, you know, I preach the gospel, and Apollos watered the gospel. It's God who gives the growth of the gospel, he'll say in chapter 3 here down the road when we get to it. What you need to understand what's behind some of this Division is the cultural makeup of Corinth that we talked a little bit about last week. But we didn't talk about one specific aspect that I think will be very helpful for us. And so let's have a little bit of a history lesson for 
a second. In Greco-Roman culture, there were two primary schools of rhetoric. Maybe you're familiar with this if you're a nerd like me. Um, is there's the classical school of rhetoric, which is kind of Aristotle and it runs down from him. And, and basically they sought to persuade people with their rhetoric, their speech, with, um, by simply being effective in communicating the whole truth. They were, they were, they were worried less about trying to, to try to you know, twist people's arms and more about, hey, the truth on its, on its merit will actually change people and, it, and let it stand on its own. But there was this other school, a newer school that was, had arisen in Greco-Roman life called the Sophistic School, the Sophistic Rhetoric School. Um, I'm probably butchering that. And it rose with a focus not so much about the truth, but about winning the argument, about winning social admiration. Um, it was less concerned about truth and more about winning people to your side. And this course, if you remember what we talked about last week, this competitive approach to communication weds well with the Corinthian background, which is very competitive, which is very about kind of building up your own status in the culture. And there was less concern in the Corinthian culture um, interest in, in, in the particulars of a truth, tell, of truth-telling, and more about winning social standing, social applause. And so let's just be honest. Let's time out for a second. The astute observer might be thinking right now, well, how, how relevant that is to our moment. How often our leaders employ a, a more sophistic rhetoric in terms of we just want to win the argument. And friends, the Christian is not interested in just winning the argument. People don't change, hearts don't change by just winning the argument. Just because you have set forth what is true and you have now tried to twist their arm and tried to show this, you must understand that, the, that, that winning the argument is not our goal. Winning souls is and loving people to Christ, and showing that the grace of God that is alive in our hearts and in our lives, that is the goal. So it's not hard to see how this approach found its way into the church in Corinth, is it? The Corinthian church, like its culture, started grading its leaders and its teachers and its preachers by their what? Their skills, their giftings. And Paul emphatically rejects this notion this sort of approach in a church, and he sees it emphatically contrary to the nature of the gospel. We'll see in verses 18 next week and through the next three or four chapters that uh, Paul deals with the importance of recognizing that we need the wisdom of God in these matters and not the wisdom of the world. And, and right now the church is choosing, for this, for this moment, is choosing the wisdom of the world as the platform to do ministry. And friends, we can't do that. The church is not called to do ministry on the foundation of the world by the world's standards of wisdom. Paul sees these intramural debates and divisions in the church as distracting from their gospel work that the church was called to undertake. And so therefore, we get into verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about the word appeal here. This is a, an imperative. Imperative means it's not Paul's opinion that he wishes to impress upon them, but it's an vital part of their identity in Christ. Paul's appealing to them to remember who they are in Christ. In fact, he says as much as you continue to read the same. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, not by brothers and sisters of any old family association, but continue on, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's appealing to them on the basis of their inclusion in the family of God. He's appealing to the fact that the Corinthians, that they should be reminded of their heavenly heritage that they have in Jesus. This is critical to deal with the divisions in your church and to remind yourself of our heavenly heritage in Christ was so important to call because Paul's concern is that their witness, that our witness, church, would be linked to the continued, our continued sharing in the inheritance that we have found in Christ. When we begin to forsake that or take that for granted, we end up driving and steering the church down all kinds of weird paths and we get sidetracked by so many other divisions in the church. Romans 8, 16 the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
Paul says there. And if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Remember your name. Remember your heritage. Remember that the name of Jesus in which you were adopted in as in, for your inheritance as God's people is so vital. It's so vital to us at Grace here today. It's vital for every other church that names Christ as Savior and King. And when we forget these things, and when we choose to remain fractured in such a way, it will expose this church and all churches in all places to danger. So what is he appealing for? Well, keep on reading with me. That you agree. That you all agree and that there be no divisions among you and that you be united in the same mind and of the same judgment. Paul is saying he's appealing for agreement. And then he says it negatively. Don't be divided. And then he says it again positively. Be united in the name of Jesus. He's saying a really, really important point here. He doesn't want us to miss it. Agree. Don't be divided. Be united. So he's saying the same thing three times in the same mind and of the same judgment. They are to share the same mind and shame to share the same judgment or in the, in the CSB, conviction. They are to share this mind and conviction of Christ is more specific here. Not the mind and convictions of men. Not the mind and convictions of the world. Christians should never be defined by our affinity groups. When we choose to relate or not relate to other believers based on our affinity groups, whether they're inside or outside the church, we are dividing the church. And we should never allow those things to divide the church. They belong, we belong Corinthian church belonged to Christ. And to live under his banner over them is of supreme importance to them from that point on, from this day on, until the time Jesus returns. Paul uses for the word united in the Greek, katarzitizo, excuse me, and it conveys with it this idea of being knit together. Like a fisherman's net mended mending their nets so they could catch more fish. And I think it's very interesting when you start thinking about being knit together. What Paul is, is, is essentially saying here is that what is most important is not simply uniformity in Christ, but unity in Christ. Not uniformity in practice, style, or personality, but unity in the central truths of the Christian faith. Namely, that Christ died for sinners and all must repent and believe to be saved that Christ was free has freed us from the chains of sin and death and from the world and that Christians must keep these main things the main things as my one of my favorite preachers Alistair Begg says be united constantly in essential Christian teaching and by doing so we'll be more effective in our witness to the world Friends, this is so important to us. And I think of a couple of takeaways. We can probably think of a lot of takeaways this morning, but I want to share a couple of them that I think is important for us to remember in terms of our unity. We must remember, number one, that the church's unity reflects the very character of God. We have one God in three persons. The Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when our unity, being made in the image of God reflects the unity of the Godhead because we have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who had no hint of rivalry among themselves. No hint of dissent from the members of the Godhead regarding the decrees and the covenantal promises of God that we find in the Scriptures. They were glad and happy to carry out these, their, their, their parts of the decree of God as one God. And not three gods. One God. And we're made in that image and in Christ, we are re being remade in the image of God again. And so we at the church, we take unity seriously because it's in fact what the gospel is doing. It's in fact what the work of Christ is doing is we are being remade into the image of God because of the perfect work of the Son, Jesus. 
And so when we neglect unity, we are neglecting our heritage in God. We are, in fact, distorting the display of God's character himself when we do not live in unity and we allow divisions to be among us. Second thing, though, the church's unity and not her uniformity, and I'll get more into that here in a minute, the church's unity, not her uniformity, best displays the accomplishments of Christ. When you not think about our unity together and how we remain centered on Christ and his accomplishments, we are reflecting to the world the most brightly as we possibly know how the glory of Jesus and what he has accomplished. I think about what has happened in our world over the last two or three years since 2020. And I I think about this with a heart that grieves me over the ways in which so many local churches, so many pastors, so many members of those churches were torn apart by issues. And I'm going to go ahead and say it. Interests, there are most of those issues. Some of those interests are very serious and some of them less serious. But they were torn apart by non-central issues because they lost their focus on Christ. Brothers, I have grieved with pastors who lost their churches. I have sat with a brother whose church is a third of what it was before COVID, all because of decisions he made trying to do the best for his church. I've grieved with brothers who, who have, whose churches fractured because they, they bullied their people into certain decisions. They, they just, there were so many different things. I was grieved with, church, with members who have left churches because they felt like they were not being heard um, for, on either end of the spectrum. Friends, I'm not being choosy here. On either end of the spectrum. I should never be named among the churches. God. Pastors. And I say this to the guys who are being trained in this church and the guys I get the, the privilege of fellowshipping with, and we talk about this often. We must be mindful never to divide the church on issues of conscience or employing methods or measures that are secondary to the primary means of grace that God has given this church. And that's not always easy, and sometimes we'll make mistakes. The Lord knows we made mistakes at times in our church. We're thankful for God's grace in this. But we need to be very careful in the decisions we make, and we must keep Christ central. And whatever it takes to keep Christ central, we must instruct our church to employ as well. And that may mean, and we said it during 2020 and following, that may mean that we have to die to ourselves a little bit with other brothers and sisters in Christ who may take opposite convictions on some things that are second and third tier issues. I'm thankful that I think that's the spirit that came out of this church. And and to God's people, the congregants in these churches, and to us, I would just call all of us to be mindful that our call to love the brethren supersedes supersedes our priority on second-tier pet concerns and projects that we have. And I'm thankful that I've seen that happen in our church. I've seen people dialogue and talk across different things. Sometimes they were difficult than others, but we, we saw good things happen. Many, but, when, but I also say, and again, not happening here, I've seen so many people scattered across into varying churches, wounded by all matters of the way we dealt with things that were secondary to Jesus. Let me just say point blank here. Here's my, here's my opinion. I think we could rightly reread verse 1 and 2. Paul called to the will of God, by the will of God, to the apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in the United States. Because I do believe that this is unique just to Corinth. I believe we experienced some of that in recent days. I don't know that they're quite as heated as they were two or three years ago, but they are real. And I think that leads us into that second point I want to say. The reason why divisions eat us alive in the church is because we've given in to the greatest threat to our unity. We've given in to pride. We've allowed our pride and our convictions on one end of the spectrum over another end of the spectrum on things that are not centered on Christ, and we've allowed those things to be central, and we've lost sight. In other words, we are assessing our ministry, we're assessing our relationships, we're assessing our covenant together as God's people through the wrong lenses. Our pride keeps us fighting for our unique perspectives 
and demanding that others align with us or that they must be like us if they are to achieve appropriate status or to be faithful as the church. I've heard people say that. If you didn't take this position, you weren't being a faithful Christian. A lie. Now, there are some things that were serious errors, and the church needs to take a stand on them, needs to be clear about them. But there are also many other things that we should be very careful that we don't divide the church over See, the pride that Paul is dealing with here in their divisions is not doctrinal per se. And I've heard people try to take this passage and they will treat it as this trying to distinguish between the doctrines of Apollos and the doctrines of Paul and the doctrines of Peter and and that the divisions were there and, and they're trying to interpret that that was the division in the church. And actually, it wasn't the division in the church. Paul was very clear in other places where doctrine is serious, and he knows that there are times when churches need to separate over doctrinal, central doctrinal issues. Um, He wrote a letter with a much sharper tone than 1 Corinthians to the Galatians, did he not? And did he not call them out for preaching another gospel? Did he not say, be separated from those Judaizers in one way or the other? Did he not even take on one of the main apostles, Peter, for himself of associating with them and not actually, and calling Peter out and say, why don't you confront them in their half gospel? Did he say Peter was preaching a half gospel? Of course he didn't. But he, took, he, but he did take a strong stance and says, we can't allow those things to divide the church. So Paul's not against separating over essential doctrine. That may come from time to time. So I want to make sure you hear this. He's not contending for a flimsy, rootless unity. We are the world kind of unity, right? No. There are things to divide over. When when, When the church forsakes essential Christian orthodoxy, it fails to be a church, a true church. So doctrine matters, and it's not a secondary issue. In fact, I think in this very text here, Paul is actually commending that doctrine, in some sense, is actually part of their unity. He says here that they, he's appealing to the unity of what? Mind. And unity of judgment or conviction. To think of unity of mind is to be to know who Christ is and who he has said he is and what is the proper understanding of who Christ is and who the Godhead is and, and the work of salvation, I would assume, and that's what I would, I would say in this with lots of other people who say the same thing, that to be united in mind is to be doctrinally sound. And to be doctrinally sound means that we would have the ability to make sound judgments on things that would maybe cause division in the church, which is, of course, the things we're going to deal with down the road. To be able to make convictions on, should we participate in uh, uh, temple prostitution? Okay, does our doctrine have something to say about that? Well, well, yes, it does. (laughs) Okay, so he's dealing with these issues, and he's saying, yeah, actually, in fact, your doctrine, Christ and his word, and the judgment that then flows out of that, in other words, spirit-driven judgment and conviction, are vital to the church's unity. But here's the thing that Paul's dealing with here. It's not doctrinal issues that are concerned for him. In fact, later on, at the end of this, he's actually going to appeal and he's going to call and say Apollos is a faithful brother and he's going to call Apollos to do some things. So this never was a division between Paul and Apollos. It was never a division between Paul and Peter. It was a division between the people, the parts of the church who were making these people be divisive in their church. So we need to be careful of what happens with our pride sometimes when it goes unchecked. There are many forms of what I'm going to call baptized pride in the church if we're not careful. Look what it says in verse 12. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. How do you like that one? Have you met that dude? Right? Have you met that person who just kind of overly spiritualizes everything as if he does have no obligation to read the scriptures and be taught by the scriptures? He says, I just follow Christ. And Paul's sitting here going, this is the pride of tribalism. And sometimes we baptize those prides in the church. I find it intensely con- uh, convicting that Paul himself doesn't even like, give a little nod to the Paul party. Right? He doesn't even give them any credit. He's like, no, wait a minute. Like, you're pro- just as much of the problem as the, the party of Peter, the party of Apollos. You're a problem. 
You know why? Because you've adopted my guy is better than your guy at philosophy. My guy is better. It's a pernicious cancer for the church. It's been a pernicious cancer in the church for ages. And he finds the notion untenable. Well, I am of John Piper. That's my guy. Alistair Begg, he really is my guy, by the way. John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, or if you're a Southern Baptist, go have any Southern Baptist, Adrian Rogers. And it's not the, it's the men themselves that are the problem. Paul's not interested, he's not, like, it's, it's not that we can't trust or lean on faithful Bible teachers. In fact, I would argue we should. I would say that in order for us to faithfully read and study the Bible, we study it not with just me, myself, and my Bible, but rather we read the Bible with the church. This is what the church has always done. That we read the Bible with the local church. About church membership matters. We read the Bible with faithful Bible teachers from this age and from the past ages. And I would say it's awful arrogant when those who pose that we don't need these types of preachers, that they that they need to read the that they can read the Bible without the great tradition of church history, I would say they're being foolish. Even the great reformers like John Calvin and Martin Luther, who heralded solo scriptura, one of the great cornerstones of the Reformation, yes? They never dismissed the fact of the importance of faithful Christians in all ages reading the Bible with faithful Christians of all ages. They didn't dismiss history. They dismissed the way the Catholic Church was using history. Did you see the difference? They didn't have a problem with history. They had a problem with the way the Catholic Church was using history, and that's the problem. And, and if you don't believe me, go read Calvin's Institutes if you've got some time. <laughs> All right? Like, go read it because he, like, the first half of the book, the first third of the book, he's dealing with, like, the rediscovering Augustinian Christianity. And Augustinian was, Augustine was, like... Centuries before him. This is a problem, right? The real issue, though, for Paul, then, is not so much that these men, or that, we can, that you and I can't have guys that we trust and listen to and read their commentaries and listen to their sermons and listen to their lectures. The real issue for Paul about this issue of tribalism draws, is when we draw tr- dark lines around issues that are second and third tier issues of importance. This is the problem. In the the tribalism that plagued Corinth was a personality-driven cancer that caused Christians to demean those who differed from them and from their favorite preacher on secondary issues or on secondary gifts and skills for them particularly. And we can see this in the American church, right? I want to die with my guy. Let someone say something about your favorite preacher negatively and don't tell me you don't get like, the hair on your back, on your neck, just go, oh, no, I'm, I'm coming after that dude. We don't need to do that. It's what, it's what Justin prayed earlier. None of us have read the Bible infallibly. Do we have what essential doctrine is? Yes. And we should fight for that. But it's not just the pride of tribalism that's one of the baptized forms of, of pride. It's also the pride of personal pietism. I know that's a big word, but let me try to explain what I mean by that. Paul has this one category here that's a little perplexing to me. I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas or Peter, I'm of Christ. What's he mean by this group that I'm of Christ? It seems to me these are the guys, these are the guys you want to like hit your wagon to. Paul is likely calling out a kind of spiritual pietism that was alive in the church that that sought to stand over other believers who didn't experience spirituality in the same way that they did. You know what I mean? Have you met these people? Like they have a way better like uh, quiet time than you do. Have you met those people? You have, right? There's a lot of people who have a better quiet time than I do. I will fully admit that. But but quiet time is not the measure of of the gospel, though. And so Paul's likely dealing with like this false piety in the church. Like true piety in the church causes us 
to recognize that God demands holy perfection and that beholds, and we are called to behold our spiritual bankruptcy and we are to look to Christ for mercy. That's what true piety will do. Our spiritual piety never isolates. True spiritual piety never isolates us and it never elevates us. And so when true Christian piety is emptied of the truth of God's word and is emptied of the person and work of Jesus, it leads us to spiritual practices that will elevate our own self-importance, our own self-adulation, I mean self-congratulation in some sense or form. So when we're, when we're dealing with this I am of Christ party here, we're dealing with the fact that there sometimes arises false pietism in the church where our Christian piety is emptied of the works and the accomplishments of Jesus. If your, if your acts of spiritual discipline, and there's are good things, and you should participate in these things, if they don't drive you to the cross and begging for mercy on a daily basis, you're doing it wrong. That's not arrogance. That's what true Christian piety does. It drives us to trust and rest in Christ. It doesn't cause us to elevate or compare, well, I had the gift of this, or I have the gift of that, or I've had this experience of this, or I had an experience of that. Pietism gives off the pretense of righteousness, but it, by erroneously thinking that our work might earn some kind of merit before God, or perhaps some kind of standing among the church. Friends, we've got to be careful of these kinds of things. Paul calls out the school of Paul, the school of Paulus, the school of Peter, and the school of those, I am in Christ. Those spiritualists who lord over the church with their own individual spiritual practices or their own doctrinaire ambitions, who look down on others who have not garnered their same level of spiritual or doctrinal superiority. Friends, that's a dangerous place to be. And it's not just dangerous for the church, it's dangerous for the individual who's participating in it. You know why? Because they are now being blinded to their need of the cross. They're being blinded by their need of the cross. And that leads us to our last point. If we want unity in the church, we need unity. unity must be, we must remember that unity is preserved through the power of the cross. Read verses 13 through 17 again with me. Is Christ divided, Paul asks? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Drop on down to 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, for that matter, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So he asks this question, is Christ divided? And it's a rhetorical question, so the answer is obviously no. Paul's not asking them if they believe that. He's saying it's, just a, it's, 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 a, it's a question to kind of provoke them to go, are you kidding me? Is Christ really divided? Paul's calling the Corinthians to see the foolishness of their divisions and what they are doing to the church. He wasn't baptized for you. He wasn't crucified for you. He offers you, Paul doesn't offer you any inheritance I don't offer you any inheritance. John Piper doesn't offer you any inheritance or any of the others we might list on that. No, friends. If Christ is whole, which is really the answer to the question, and Christ is not divided, he is whole, then the church must be whole as well. Free from these foolish divisions. So then what is needed then? If we're going to be unified as the church... What is truly needed? And the answer is simply what Paul says there in verse 17. The power of the cross. Keeping the cross in view at all times will keep us humble. Humility is a key attribute to the Christian life. Oh, I know. We try to be humble and we fail at it, right? And let me just give you a little comfort here. You can't cultivate humility on your own. We're far too arrogant. We're far too still filled with the world at times. doesn't mean we shouldn't try, but humility is not something that we primarily do ourselves. It is something that the Spirit cultivates in us as we stand before Christ and under the banner of the cross daily. 
in whatever way in which the Lord calls you to do so. That we are living under the shadow of the cross as God's people as the means by which we protect the unity of the church. But also keeping the cross central keeps us from measuring our effectiveness as a church or perhaps the effectiveness of ministers or pastors or elders or whoever you might call by worldly standards. And just think about how much that is the norm, that we measure preaching by craft. We measure preaching or we measure worship services by not having pops in the middle of the service, right? Right? That we measure worship services by the talent of the worship team on stage. That we measure churches by how comfortable the seats are that you're sitting in. Or how cool or how, cool or how hot it is in the room. Or how many, what you have for your children's ministry or your youth ministry. Keeping the cross central keeps us from measuring our effectiveness of our churches and our ministers and our programs by worldly standards. Preaching, true preaching, isn't rooted... In eloquence, Paul says. He says that's an imagination that you, it's something you imagined because of your core Corinthian culture. They were measuring Paul and they were comparing Apollos and Paul based on what? Their eloquence, their skill, perhaps their revivalistic tactics in order to get people to make decisions. No. True preaching is preaching Christ and Christ alone. That's preaching. Always Christ and always Christ alone. True preaching is rooted in the power of Christ's cross. Right? The schools of rhetoric are not tools that God uses for building His church, although we have employed them, have we not? And how much do we compare... And this is not something I would say to you because I don't, I don't sense this in our church as much, but I know a lot of people who, who, who pastors, if they feel like they are being judged and being compared by their favorite preacher who has an online sermon that they're going to watch that afternoon because my pastor just didn't get it done for me today. Let it never be that you worry about me and my personality or any of the elders' personalities, but that we would come in here hungry for the Word of God. That's true preaching. True churches are not measured by the sizes of crowds, ministry programs that entertain, or, or neither are they measured by any kind of outward manifestations. No, they are measured by the preaching of the cross. We see this in our world today, yes. It confronts our modern ideas, ideas of strategies that churches employ. And, and this is not a Take a cheap shot at other churches. Don't, don't hear this. I know there are people who make myriad decisions than I make, and I love those brothers, and I believe they love Jesus, and I believe they're trying to keep Jesus central. But sometimes we employ modern forms of rhetoric in order to prove that we are faithful Christians, right? You find this sometimes in the apologetic world. Not always. What if I, where, where I, I need to match the debaters of this world? Or I need to match biblical acumen with biblical acumen. And, and listen, friends, we need to know the Bible. We need to know good theology. We, we, we aspire to do that in our church, yes? We want to, to put that before you. But when that becomes the means by which we measure our effectiveness, we're, we're really getting things sideways, yes? Or what about revivalism? That we disemploy methods that we hope will allure people or maybe, maybe the pastor needs to have enough unction in his preaching to draw people to the anxious bench, the old school thing, you know what I'm talking about? That came out of the second great revival. Have I tugged on your soul enough, brother, that you're going to make the decision for Jesus this morning? It's not revivalism that makes the church true. Not programs, as we said, but look at how much, right? Like we have churches who set the mood, right? Again, I don't want to be judgmental. But friends, mood music and lighting and all those kinds of things, 
keeps us from seeing Jesus because we are enamored by those things when, when, we, when they really are doing something antithetical. Just because we get a crowd in a room doesn't mean we've actually drawn more people to Jesus. No, I would rather have Paul's words about unity that he expresses in chapter 4 be the, the banner that this church lives under. Let me just read this for you. And I'm just going to simply leave it there and we're going to pray. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So it sounds very similar to what we're dealing with in 1 Corinthians, yes? I'm urging you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Isn't that what he's doing here in verses 10 through 17? And how do you do it? With all humility, gentleness, patience, Bearing with one another in love. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body. There is one Spirit. Just as we were all called to one hope that belongs to our call. One Lord. One faith. One baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all and in all. May that be the measure of our church as we see Christ at the center all our days. Jesus, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for sometimes painful instruction. Sometimes painful realizations. Perhaps, Lord, you're dealing in the hearts of people in this room about some of these matters themselves this morning. And Father, I would pray that your spirit will continue to shape and cultivate that in the means in which you have, you have called them to. And Father, as we come to the table this morning, and our, our brother Ben comes to lead us in our Lord's Supper time, Lord, I just pray that you would call all of us to consider deeply what it means to be united and reconciled as your people. In the name of Christ, as we come to this table this morning. It's in Christ's name. Amen.